You're listening to Talking Taiwan with your host, Felicia Lin. My guest on today's episode of Talking Taiwan is Dr. Wilson Wong, a pediatric emergency room physician and hospitalist at NYU and NYC Public Hospital System, with experience in international health care delivery and pandemic response. He is the founder and CEO of Walking Doctors, a company that provides modern electronic medical record and clinical decision support systems to low and middle income countries. I'll be speaking with him about his work with the 2014 Ebola outbreak and the current coronavirus crisis in New York City. Note to our listeners, I spoke to Dr. Wong last week on March 30th, 2020. Here's our interview. Thank you so much for making the time and joining us on the podcast today. Thank you, Felicia. Great to um, reconnect with you. So um, how are you and your family um, doing? How are you dealing with the COVID-19 here in New York City? Well, I think we're dealing it pretty much like everyone uh, in this pandemic. Uh, first of all, just to say that is really surreal. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, we, we're, we're dealing with that paradox of trying to be normal but also knowing that these are not normal times. So what I mean by that, not normal times means in New York City, as in many, many places, uh, a quarantine um, and attempts to not socialize um, in the way that we did before to try to be at home as much as possible. But we, you know, like many families have multi-generations in our home, uh, including a just-turned-four-year-old. And the city has a program for first responders um, or those that are really important in keeping society running, such as transportation, the people that deliver our food, uh, the people that um, you know keep the, the city clean. They allow our child to go to school. Mm-hmm. And so the paradox is I'm a doctor, I'm trying to keep my family safe, but I also need to understand that this child needs to be normal as well and not develop a personality based on fear, which would be very legitimate. Uh, so we bring her to school. And so when we bring her to school, we go on the bus and she wants to sing or she wants to eat a mango. It's sort of surreal, right? It's surreal trying to go through the patterns of life, which are really important, but know that this is not a normal time. So I think we are experiencing the same types of stressors as anyone. And just because I'm a doctor doesn't give me more legitimacy on you know adaptation or lack of adaptation. It's pretty much the same, just mm-hmm. with different categories. Mm-hmm. Wow. Oh, so she she's still able to go to school at this time? She is. Oh, she wow. is. Most people think I'm pretty crazy. Um, but she loves it, and the, the school is practicing the new normal, mm-hmm. such as mm-hmm. I can't go into the school when I drop her off. Mm-hmm. She has to be mm-hmm. cancel, mm-hmm. Uh, constantly uh, washing her hands. Mm-hmm. The four-year-olds somehow are not supposed to hug each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot of separation in the classroom, mm-hmm. a lot of feedback, a lot of, mm-hmm. wow. a lot of adaptation. Wow. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's a lot that I um, want to speak to you about since the last time I had you on Talking Taiwan. We spoke about your work with uh, IRC and the Ebola outbreak. And now you've set up something called Walking Doctors. Can you tell me a little bit about that? And how did your work with Ebola lead to uh, establishing Walking Doctors? 
Yeah, well, first, I can't believe over five years yes. has passed. Yeah. <laughs> how you've grown, Felicia. <laughs> um, how the world has grown and changed. Yes. Um, and not changed. Uh, you know, Walking Doctors was at first, um, for me, a, a critical project, but then a passion product, and now turned critical project again. Uh, when I was involved in creating the systems for the running of Ebola treatment units in Liberia for the um, International Rescue Commission, which is a large NGO, about $1 billion, that offers relief and rescue for, for populations experiencing um, extreme uh, harm and difficulty. I, I saw very quickly that old methods wouldn't work. And what I mean by old methods is a doctor that would be like, you know, you expect your doctors just to come into a situation and know exactly what to do. You trust them to, to come up with the right diagnosis and treatment, and, and day is done. But in a, a pandemic, or ep, what was that, more an epidemic in West Africa, you had new considerations such as the disease that is harming your patient might kill you, or people were dealing with a disease that they've never heard of never even thought of, never been train, trained um, about, including myself. I mm -hmm. was the senior clinical advisor for Ebola response and frankly didn't know anything mm -hmm. uh, at the beginning. And it did teach me that, you know, what is an expert? An expert is really someone who's willing to study, experience, and then learn from feedback uh, and, and uh, really, really honestly and constantly. So I saw that in recruiting, it's just one piece of this, recruiting tens if not hundreds of of physicians and nurses to to staff our Ebola treatment unit that no one again knew anything and so the stakes were so high both for provider and patient you know don't want to lose a provider don't want to lose your patients um, how could you standardize treatment and because it was 2014 finally the internet cable had been dragged down from Europe um, when before it was just a, a very weak satellite internet signal. Um, finally, there was experience with smartphones and touchpads, even in a place like Liberia. Mm -hmm. and so we decided to reconfigure a traditional concept of electronic medical records, which existed today, from a simple recording device to a device that actually helps providers know what to do and how to do it. And so we did that for the variety of diseases, including Ebola, but you know, most people don't have Ebola or have diseases comorbid with Ebola. We put these on um, uh, tablets. You know, the, the technology had even been such that, you know, things, these tablets were waterproof. And so, you know, we could douse them with chlorine. Mm. But the point is that we really made it simple. Essentially, it's like when doctors come up with a diagnosis and disease after hearing the story and examining the patient, they pulled up a checklist that verified their thinking, helped document what they were doing, and helped them act on decisions according to the organization's protocols. Mm -hmm. So no more guessing what to do, what medicine to use, what dose to give it at. Mm -hmm. The suggestions were right in front of the clinician. And they didn't take offense. You would think like, oh, no, no doctor wants to be told what to do. But um, they like to be suggested as what to do. Um, especially in times of stress and especially, mm -hmm. if it, especially if it saves some time. Yeah, so we re reconfigured the EMR and to great success. Luckily, the Ebola epidemic waned, but then we still had the issue of opening up the first public hospital 
the first hospital, I should say, a first healthcare facility, I should say, in the whole country. A lot of people didn't realize that for a year, every Mm -hmm. single healthcare facility was closed Mm -hmm. in Liberia and Sierra Leone. And probably 20 to 40 times more people died of non-Ebola things than Ebola things because they couldn't go to care. Mm -hmm. Um, So we had some success applying this thing for the bullet treatment into the hospitals itself. And then fast forward to just my career in international health, I realized, wait a second, this is fundamentally the problem in healthcare today in that there's extreme variability in care because, you know, disease is complex or something like 5,000 diseases of 2,500 different drugs to prescribe. Mm -hmm. And it's really hard to keep them all straight. Mm-hmm. Um, so on the one hand, using technology, it, it made sense to just present evidence-based protocols on which healthcare providers are really comfortable, just you know, conveniently in front of the the provider, that in a way that was elegant and they could act quickly on. And then because that data was structured, then you could use that data to inform the healthcare system or mm-hmm. public health uh, bodies about how the system entire was uh, working or how patients were doing clinically. Mm-hmm. So where that's relevant to the COVID-19 response is exactly the same issue, problem, and opportunity, right? The issue right now is that clinicians, especially in the United States where we're trained on chronic disease mostly, we don't know anything about this disease and how it's changing. And so it's really important to standardize the diagnosis and treatment of this disease. I think the diagnosis is coming clear, but at the beginning it was not clear. We doctors didn't know if the test was even available. We didn't know how to swab. We didn't know how to protect ourselves as we were doing this. Um, Now it's clear about the testing, but it's not clear about treatment. And there's been a lot of adjustment in treatment just based on theory Mm -hmm. because the providers are not systematically giving guidance as to what is the institutional or what is sort of societal or uh, professional uh, standard of, of care. And that's everything from use of the antimalarial uh, chloroquine in, in treatment of hospitalized COVID-19 patients, which I think is rather silly without backing it up with some study. Or even you know, right now, if you have a severe asthma attack, most emergency rooms in the country won't give you a life-saving dose of inhaled albuterol for fear that it would infect staff people who incidentally are in personal protective equipment. But this has never been a a substantiated practice, but because of fear care from lack of standardization and therefore study of protocols, you know, healthcare providers are really in a bind. And then just to extend that, since data is not structured and it's not shared, public health bodies don't even know the simple questions such as like how is this pandemic affecting the United States differently than other countries? Um, How does our diversity play out in this Mm -hmm. disease? Mm -hmm. Um, What are the different morbidities or mortality associated with with different groups, different ethnic groups, different age groups, different, you know, you can can fill in the blank. So that's sort of a long way of saying that I started walking doctors just to confront initially the issues in Ebola about standardizing care and then sharing the data. But then I realized that was an issue just generally in the United States, or sorry, generally in the world um, uh, about standardizing care, especially where there are not enough doctors 
Um, but even where there are doctors, just a huge variability of care. And then again, being able to share data so that people know how to focus their resources because healthcare practice is really expensive. And then now, ironically, in the United States, we have again the same problem as if, as in Liberia in 2014, the standardization of care and the sharing of the results of care so that public health bodies can disseminate best clinical practices and make it very clear to the public about what is the trajectory of this disease. So I'm wondering if we could talk a little bit about the nature of Ebola and how it was contained and perhaps that compares to what's going on with COVID-19. Yeah, I mean, this might be a bold statement, but I'm going to say it. I, I feel like this is COVID-19 pandemic is a lot worse. Um, already the numbers are worse. In Ebola, the, the price tag was $53 billion. Mm-hmm. Um, I've read estimates that on the world, this might cost $7 trillion. Wow. There were 11,000 um, deaths uh, in Ebola, and I think we've already surpassed that. And with a probable world you know, mortality in in the millions, um, if 1918 Spanish flu is any gauge where there's 21 million dead, um, this pandemic could easily uh, outstretch that. Um, but the, hopefully those numbers will be mitigated by advancements in technology over uh, over 100 years. So Ebola was not a great pandemic or didn't have potential for a great pandemic. Essentially, you need these factors to have an epidemic pandemic. One is is that you have an animal disease going to a human. Mm-hmm. Then you have the conversion of that pathogen from, uh, to human to human spread. Mm-hmm. But then the key part is there has to be then low-level mortality, but high infectivity mm-hmm. uh, combination to really get your mortality numbers. So mm-hmm. in Ebola, it just killed too quickly, and you could tell who had it. I mean, it was really crazy. It's just people that had Ebola, they were well established, got really high fevers, would mm-hmm. vomit and mm-hmm. and have blood, you know, coming out of, you know, just it was just horrible. And you could see, and you would stay away mm-hmm. from those mm-hmm. those people, um, and they would die fast. So the chance of spread was much was much mitigated. But in COVID-19, it kills, you know, instead of 90%, it probably kills a little bit less than 1%, right? Mm-hmm. And then it's spread through the common cold symptoms right. of running nose. And who doesn't have running nose? So whereas people were scared in Ebola, as they should have been scared of mm-hmm. touch, they weren't scared as much as they are now, where you think like, you just sneezed, you know? You look well, you see, or even my own family, they, they pose the right question, like, are you, are you risking our, our health by being a doctor, by, mm-hmm. by riding the bus? You know, it's a really difficult, personal, yeah. everyone feels bad. It's just like, yeah. it's really weird. That's, yeah, so. That's, yeah, that's a tough question. Yeah, so, so, so there's analogies about fear. There's analogies about uh, response. So let's go with let's just respond because it's a bit easier. You know, we know exactly how to contain this, just like in Ebola, we knew exactly how to contain it. We also know those countries or organizations that have practice with it, they have developed the protocols to keep people safe or to control the disease. So in Ebola, it was Doctors Without Borders. They had been treating this for decades, Mm -hmm. you know, since the 1960s. Mm -hmm. Um, 
And so they took the lead and they taught organizations like my organization, taught the CDC, taught, you know, the WHO, okay, this is how you have to to practice protection for healthcare workers, right? It sounds really selfish, but it's sort of kind of true, whether it's selfish or not. It's like you have to keep the healthcare workers safe, oh, right? Because if they, if they perceive that they're at risk or they, mm -hmm. you know, fall sick and die, you know, God forbid, then they run away. You know, they're human. Mm -hmm. And then you'd, you can imagine there, there'd be sort of chaos and panic as a result mm -hmm. of that, more chaos than mm -hmm. panic. Um, so the analogy then is in, in COVID-19 is, well, you have a lot of Asian countries that are really good with pandemics related to influenza and coronavirus, essentially because they had it, right? So the SARS 2003 epidemic was really, you know, it really sort of was awakening to Hong Kong, Taiwan, um, uh, Singapore. And so those guys know exactly how to do it. You know, mm -hmm. they, you know, someone, they, they detect it. That means if they know how it's spread uh, through fever, respiratory mm -hmm. symptoms, they figure out where you're coming from. They uh, look at your symptoms. If you're high risk, they quarantine you. They track you, they support you, but you're not allowed just to do whatever you want. They keep your eyes on, you know, and then they test broadly. Mm -hmm. So as to know if there is infection in the community, hotspots uh, that need to be extinguished. Um, and they try not to have the patient or the person who's at risk come to the healthcare facility and infect healthcare workers and other patients. So in this response, uh, in the United States, to our detriment, we didn't follow those people that had experience. And I think there's probably even an element of xenophobia, like, oh, look at those Chinese, look at how, you know, this COVID-19 is spreading through Wuhan province, um, I mean, Hebei province and uh, Wuhan city, you know, they should stop, you know, eating crazy things, you know, and we just watched that, right? Mm -hmm. We thought, okay, that's only going to be them. Mm -hmm. um, we didn't watch how at the same time, Taiwan, Right, we're Taiwanese American. Mm -hmm. Taiwan was prepare, preparing something like something crazy, like one quarter of their population like has either you know, you know either lives there, or has mm -hmm. a a business there, or they regularly travel through right. China. So obviously they are going to be at risk, and they followed those three you know strategies. You know, one is figuring out who is coming from where, second testing them. Um, and then quarantining them with support and then testing very broadly the population um, just to make sure that there's no you know uh, spread of of the disease outside those those people of focus well we in the united states we essentially didn't do any of that right okay said okay planes don't come from wuhan but didn't look at you know connecting flights uh, the fact that it was you know already in different places when people uh, came here, we didn't screen them, not even their temperature. Uh, we didn't uh, uh, quarantine anyone at risk um, and follow them very um, closely with support. And we certainly didn't test broadly. Um, and so all our stuff is very reactionary. We could have stopped this when, you know, there was just a, a few deaths from, you know, many infected, but not 10 to 25% of our population. I think that probably where it's going to be at in the end 10 to 25 percent of the wow. u.s population wow. will be infected so you 
believe that had we used those strategies early enough and been prepared, maybe it would be a different story now? And would we have been able to do that? Well, I mean, I think culturally things are harder. Um, oh, Alicia, I was just looking at, there's a great map uh, disseminated by uh, John Hopkins mm -hmm. that I think most people know, but I was just looking at the deaths, yep. right? Remember, we were talking mm -hmm. about Ebola deaths, mm -hmm. 11,000. Mm -hmm. It's 35,000 right now. Um, so, you know, that that's, we haven't even reached our peak. So we know that the death toll will be very high. Let's, you know, let's hope I'm wrong and people mm -hmm. say, oh, you know, yeah. what a doomsday doctor, Dr. Wong was, that he said <laughs> it's going to be in the millions. Um, I hope, I hope mm -hmm. I'm mm -hmm. drastically wrong. Um, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, uh, could we have done it? For sure. I mean, this country can do everything. And even if it can, doesn't it always say it can? Um, especially in the area of technology, right? We're really mm -hmm. good with technology. Mm -hmm. And uh, we're pretty good with defense, if I recall. I mean, mm -hmm. we put one third of our budget mm -hmm. in it. So I would imagine, you know, this is probably a really good application of a real defense system, right? right? Against enemy that yeah. doesn't show all its colors and adapts and, and infiltrates. Uh, we could have done it, but you have to, A, have the humility to learn from other people. Mm -hmm. from other countries, mm -hmm. you know, to not always say politically that you know how to do everything. You probably need to have practice, right, in thinking that that disease over there is not just someone else's problem. Mm -hmm. So I think culturally we would have had difficulty, but we spend a lot of money in healthcare. So I think the expectation is that our healthcare and you know, public health systems that we should distinguish those, but you know, they should, you know, this by and large come hand in hand that they would do what needs to be done to protect the population mm -hmm. and not just be so uh, reactionary. Yeah, it's frustrating. Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. You know, I just wonder about the tracking because I know that Taiwan has a lot of like, the infrastructure is very different and uh, the way they're able, like they have the house, the household registrations and the way that they could track people's travel and all those things. I. I don't know, is the U.S. prepared to do that or able to do that? They're certainly able to do it because that's just a technical consideration, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So it's really about what they want to do it. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm not talking about what China did to Hebei and Wuhan. That was effective, and ironically, we might end up in that place. But they essentially said, no one leaves the house one person uh can leave the house though every i think it was a week mm. you know to go to a mm -hmm. distribution center to mm -hmm. get your food stuffs mm -hmm. even healthcare workers like me mm -hmm. were 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 picked up and delivered you know they didn't get to ride their bike or mm -hmm. you know take a subway mm -hmm. but singapore and taiwan they don't take that methodology they uh, do say that if you are under quarantine, you will be um, supported and um, enforced, um, but in a context of support, right, to to follow that quarantine for the public's health. But I was reading the, a really great JAMA article on the Taiwan experience, and it was talking about how there's a you know a whole separate body that exists to support those in quarantine, mm -hmm. like to deliver them food, mm -hmm. to offer them access to social media, mm -hmm. to de-stigmatize um, mm -hmm. this disease, right? Right. 
And that's sort of the opposite, not only of China, but even here, you know what you know what that would look like or likely look like right. a quarantine. It's like, oh, you you know, it's sort of our individual philosophy that in some aspects of American culture really are great, right? It encourages, you know, ingenuity and the bootstrap picking up, you know, philosophy. But when you have a disease, it's get flipped, like, oh, you're the you're the cause of disease as opposed to people are, are become diseased because of, you know, si- you know, systemic flaws. Mm-hmm. So it could be done really easy. Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. you would just, you know, put your, you know, if we if we have already essentially spent over three trillion dollars in different ways on this pandemic, I'm sure you could, you know, give them an app, you know, that tells you where the, you know, or just find out the coordinates of their phone, figure out what people are, have a a, a group that's there to incur, you know, offer support and track the people that were around those people who have the positive test. Mm-hmm. The problem is, Felicia, is that none of this would ever been possible because the testing wasn't available from the very beginning, uh-huh. right? The whole, uh-huh. you know, if the objective is to prevent the spread of COVID-19 mm-hmm. through North America, mm-hmm. well, then you'd have to be able to measure that if what you're doing gets you that objective. Mm-hmm. Well, the measure for whether something is spread through North America is number of positive tests. Mm-hmm. And it's pretty much a foregone conclusion, documented, not even my opinion, that for three weeks we didn't have access to mm-hmm. testing. Mm-hmm. So it was already spread. Yeah. You know, sometimes you just mm-hmm. need the basics, like mm-hmm. test the people, right? Mm-hmm. Um, even now, I, you know, I would think the best study to do uh, now that testing is more you know, broadly available is why don't you test people not coming to the hospital? Why don't you just mm-hmm. test everyone right. in the in the in that building over there, that right. building over there, right. those those mm-hmm. workers, and randomize and just say what percent of the population is infected? I think it would go a long ways. Right. So why didn't we have the test early enough? Did we the U.S. just not take it seriously enough to be prepared enough to have the foresight to focus on? We need to have early testing. It was both. I'm not, you know, I wasn't in the room for this. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so I want to say a lot of this stuff. We did. Like, I, I, you know, I'm not an expert in anything. Sure. That's what I just, yeah. yeah. So I read the paper. I, yeah. I study. I, you know, I, I, I triangulate. But in reading um, what's in the print media, it was very clear. So I experienced the result of it when I'm in the emergency room. And I'm like, mm-hmm. uh, this test isn't going anywhere. We don't have any tests. Mm-hmm. But I know now what happened. What happened is to two things first like you said people didn't take it seriously but oh that's a chinese problem right even now the president persists to say that this is a chinese virus Mm -hmm. which is really just saying that this is not our problem right he Mm -hmm. still thinks this is still not our problem Mm -hmm. like wow you know come to the hospital this is our problem um so but the second thing is that again culturally we always I i should stop saying the word always we often in this country think that we're exceptional and that we can do it ourselves Mm -hmm. so while the who and other uh was making available a patented or mentioned a patent approved tested Mm -hmm. um uh way to detect coronavirus uh, 2019 the cdc wanted to develop it on their own Mm -hmm. so the cdc was developing on its own Mm -hmm. And it didn't work. Wow! It did work to the very ends. There's big political stuff with wow. with this, and and so by the time that it finally worked out the kinks and and was brave enough to tell the president, and the president was brave enough to sort of stop saying that there was a million tests available and and anyone could get it who wanted it. 
when people finally were brave enough to, you know, say, oh, that wasn't the case, it was too late. It had already spread. Right. And so wow. I, re- I read an article just the other day about even the president now, he asked South Korea, right, which has yep. the most te- testing per capita mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. the world to send as many as possible. Cause so we there, could use them. they could have used something that the WHO had developed? For sure, because... Oh, wow. Well, I think there's two things. Sorry, yeah. let me add a third thing. So, yes. yes, they could have used it with the WHO or they could have simultaneously, and this is what South Korea did, uh-huh. is that they they asked the private sector right. to develop the assay based on you know their advanced technology uh-huh. and, and their penchant for efficiency based on the antigens that had already been released you know, by China mm-hmm. back in mm-hmm. in early February, or if, mm-hmm. if not late January. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So just get them going while they, you know, decreased regulation um, that was required for, um, you know, normal certification of products. By the way, that already happened. So people always think, oh, no, no, we need to have a high standard. We need a high, well, that stuff has already, you know, been decreased. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, it's been done before. So mm-hmm. if you don't, if you think, you know, Germany knows what they're doing, or if you could believe that Singapore knows what they're doing, mm-hmm. if you could believe that um, China knows what they're doing, then you could be able to have the testing in advance. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. you need to be able to test with any disease, right? right. If it were diabetes, right. you would still need to say, well, is your sugar high? Mm-hmm. If it were, mm-hmm. um, if it were um, sepsis, you know, uh, overwhelm, uh, you'd need to be able to culture bacteria in the blood. It's 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 a common, you know, it it would be like hackneyed to say to say that the testing was needed to mitigate the effects of this pandemic. It was certainly a pandemic is new by definition, but that doesn't mean that we don't know what a pandemic is. Um, okay, so let's uh, switch gears a little bit to something a little bit more practical for people um, who are going to be listening, um, because I think that there may be some misinformation or some confusion about what steps or precautions people should be taking. So maybe we could ask some basic questions like people worried about how long does the virus survive in the air? Is it uh, how easy is it to get it if it's airborne? And uh, like if you were to go in an elevator and somebody who had COVID was in the elevator before you, could you catch it in the elevator? Yeah. Well, in answering this question, I'm not going to ask for a mulligan, but I will say that in answering this question about the infectivity or the infectious um, risk of coronavirus 2019, COVID-19, mm-hmm. I'll say that there's the science and then there's the human. Mm-hmm. And in the human, there's also the doctors. Mm-hmm. So what I mean by the human part is that you can say whatever you want to people. They're going to do it with a with variability, right? right? So, you know, example, until recently, probably just two weeks ago, even the Chinese government wouldn't say that masks are protective to the general public, mm-hmm. right? But any Asian knows that during that time or even before masks were are sort of a constant constantly in use yeah right? they're very commonplace 
Yeah, like here if you walk around with a mask in a non-pandemic situation, they're like, you know, what's going on with that person? Like, you got you, know, you got cancer or something? Or, but like, you know, in Taiwan, he's like, oh, there's lots of pollution. I'm going to put this on. Or, right. um, so I remember I was actually traveling through both Indonesia and, um, and uh, Thailand for work uh, related to walking doctors uh, in early February. And everyone was wearing a mask. <laughs> everyone, mm-hmm. right? Everyone, mm-hmm. you know, um, including the Chinese tourists that were in Bangkok. They were wearing masks too. So, well, the question uh, is, now, were you wearing a mask? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's related to the science. I was not, um, and I'll get to that in a second. I'm a purist, and I still don't wear a mask in public. Um, though, you know, I also want to be humble and, and still be willing to learn. So, you know, another example of being human and maybe the human response knowing more than the formal response is, you know, right now in the emergency room, the the suggestion is to wear the standard surgical mask, um, eye protection and gown when you see a patient uh, with suspected COVID-19. But how the doctors are in full gear, you know, even when they're typing the medical record. Mm -hmm. And some, you know, have taken it to another level, like, you know, two masks, helmet, three pairs of gloves. You know, I went to work the other day in pediatrics, you know, I'm a pediatrician in in the emergency room, and we have adult residents rotating to learn from, um, you know, learn that kids are not just small adults. Mm -hmm. And I had to tell the resident, okay, you need to take off your stuff. You know, I wanted, you know, I I did it gently, but, you know, the end result was I need him to stop looking like Darth Vader, right? (laughs) And treating like, you know, a common cold Mm -hmm. or or hives, you know, I don't want him to go into full gear. So there's that human piece. Mm -hmm. So, but I feel there is science to it, right? So let me explain my humanness to the science. Um, is the science is very known on coronaviruses. Like coronaviruses, there's seven types and four have been causing, you know, human disease for a long time. Uh, essentially, coronavirus counts for one third of all colds, um, and to a, lo- a lesser extent. Um, lower respiratory tract infections, which be, you know, interpreted as like bronchitis or mm-hmm. viral pneumonia. So this has been known forever and that is spread through respiratory droplets and contact. So the respiratory droplets people understand, you cough and then there's like these, you know, small bubbles that come out usually three feet away from you and then settle onto the ground. Um, because, you know, People liked a little wiggle room on that. They multiply the three feet by six feet. So, you know, if I have an infection and a respiratory droplet um, pathogen, I cough. If as long as you're three feet away, but okay, it's fine. Six feet away, you're you're fine, even if you don't have a mask. Yeah. But then those droplets, if it's on a hard surface, can live for a long time. Right. Now, there's not great, dis- you know, studies on like is the concentration of that stuff on the surface high enough to cause hot, you know, uh, infection. But I think it's pretty much understood that, that you can touch um, a surface um, that has been coughed on essentially, or, mm-hmm. you know, snot, snot has been rubbed on there mm-hmm. and you mm-hmm. put it, you know, in some, you know, place where there's, you know, wetness, your, your mucosa, your eyes, mm-hmm. your, your nose, mm-hmm. your mouth, mm-hmm. um, and you can get it. 
-hmm. So, and on the surface, things can last for hours to days, mm -hmm. and I, that's that's very well documented. Mm -hmm. So, so while people are focused on the mask, what they really need to focus on is hand washing, right? Because like soap, viruses hate soap. Like mm -hmm. they run from it, you know. Mm -hmm. As opposed mm -hmm. to a mask, yeah, if someone's coughing right at you, it'd be nice to have that mask. But but frankly, you know you're going to touch something and then you touch your mask and then it's on the mask and you know it's not it's not as um uh as effective as hand washing so the the debate though is 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 the is this aerosized and that's just a smaller droplet that can travel distances mm -hmm. up to a something like in american terms a football field mm -hmm. and so there's fear that coronavirus is spread through aerosol droplets in aerosol form and that's relevant because people are talking about this specialized mask that fits better on the face and then has smaller pores mm -hmm. it's called the n95 mask right, right. and that just means that 95 percent of aerosolized pathogens won't go into your mask so when people say they don't have enough PPE, personal protective equipment, especially mm -hmm. healthcare workers, right. a lot of people are referring to the N95 mask. Right. And respiratory droplets don't go through <clears throat> a surgical mask. They uh -huh. certainly don't need to go through an N95 mask. Uh -huh. So I don't use an N95 mask um, to see patients. Um, and again, I want to say I'm a pediatrician, so the surge of patients is much less than the adult side. Right. The risk to me is much less. Right. Um, so, so is this aerosolized? I don't think so because, again, it's a coronavirus and they're not aerosolized. Another way to, to prove the point, um, prove the point, but to suggest that the risk is not as high as you know, people might fear is that we know that measles – is an aerosolized pathogen. Uh -huh. By the way, I've really, you see, can you tell I've been really practicing how to say the word aerosolized? <laughs> In fact, I just messed it up, aerosolized. Oh, yeah. anyway, so um, it's very difficult. Um, measles is, is passed in aerosol form. Uh -huh. And there's a term called reproductive number, right? Uh -huh. It's an amount of people that you infect if you have it. Okay. on average the reproductive number on pathogens that have respiratory droplet spread mm -hmm. are lower mm -hmm. so for covid-19 it's 2.3 for sars it was 3 to 4 right it's uh -huh. sars is, is the the parent virus mm -hmm. or a similar virus mm -hmm. in terms of form as covid-2 mm -hmm. um, influenza is 1.3 measles is 12 right so if if it were spread through aerosol, then nothing would essentially work, right? You would have just massive spread all through society, right? Because mm -hmm. I would just mm -hmm. cough and have, mm -hmm. I have COVID-19, COVID-19, mm -hmm. uh, COVID I cough and basically everyone on the street's going to get it because they're not even wearing a N19, you know, mm -hmm. a 95 mask right, in general. Right, right. So especially when, you know, we haven't even gotten to the apex of this thing, there's going to be like lots of need for this PPE I would suggest people now, especially if they're seeing someone who's like, okay, you have hives or you have a fever, but you, you know, you have a, I had a patient just the other day that admitted to the hospital. The patient has a severe skin infection in the groin, mm -hmm. you know, sucks, mm -hmm. but it's mm -hmm. a skin in the groin. Yeah. Of course, 
the hospital put the kid on you know COVID nineteen precautions. So everyone's using the scarce PPE to see this kid with a groin infection who doesn't have any respiratory symptoms. Wow. So no wonder there's not enough of the actual thing. Yeah. Now I think I think the final piece is a little bit confusing, but understandable. But you know in abnormal situations you have to not do normal things mm -hmm. so even though people always knew this was a respiratory um, you know and contact type pathogen spread mm -hmm. pathogen or you know statistically like 99% is going to be that way even though the WHO promulgated okay surgical mask gloves and gown mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. and eye shields right uh -huh. if someone's coughing uh -huh. right the CDC said no we're gonna do we're gonna go a step further we're going to use OSHA standards, you know, occupational safety, right. health. I don't even know why they would use OSHA. It doesn't make any sense. Uh -huh. And they said, no, everyone's going to use an N95 oh. mask. Hmm. And in fairness to the CDC, although these are all just sort of systems, you know, I work at NYU. Uh, my sister's at Stanford, brother-in-law at Stanford. Every sort of really rich academic institution is is recommending n95 hmm. for treatment of covid mm -hmm. uh, 19 patients mm -hmm. and that's even but still there has to be distinguishing like they're not they're even doing it for people that are you know at, um suspected right mm -hmm. and there's very de wow. de degrees of being suspected right. but no wonder there's not no, no. and then mm -hmm. i heard this crazy article and again mm -hmm. what you know what an expert i am that i'm really just like sourcing it through stuff i read but it turns out there's a, a lot of the ingredients of the n95 mask are produced in hebei province wow. <laughs> where it all started so like mm -hmm. you could see why there was a scarcity because the place that used wow. to be the center yeah. is is uh you know, was producing the key ingredients of N95. So I imagine people said, like, we don't want your masks. Wow. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for that explanation. Yeah, um, yeah and also, also along the lines of this, like, you know, a lot of people are really worried about um, if when they go shopping, they go to the grocery store and they bring back the bags or any goods, like, should they be worried if they're like, should they be wiping or wiping down the bag or like wiping down any of the um, products that they brought back from the grocery store? And should they be worried about the packages that they received from Amazon? Because Amazon had some cases and, you know, should they be worried about these cover boxes? Yeah, it's really hard. I mean, I think when it comes down to it, you have to give recommendations and follow those recommendations that A, are science-based, and B, that are realistic, right? Right. So on the science base, we know it's contact and respiratory 99 plus percent of the time, right? Mm -hmm. Because otherwise it'd be spread everywhere. Other countries wouldn't be able to control it. The reproductive number wouldn't be, um, you know, 2.3, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so on the one hand, we know you know, that's how it's spread. But then theoretically, since it can exist on any, so, so you want to wash your hands. That makes sense, right? Yeah. You'd want to stay six feet away from other people. And yeah. if you can, you'd want to have a mask just in case some stranger coughs on you, yeah. right? Right. But let's say you don't have a mask, mm -hmm. right? Then, then you could still, you could still say that you'd be okay, right? Because if you stay away from people, you don't take the public transportation where everyone's together, um, then, you 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 would be okay. Now, but now let's talk about the contact, right? Mm -hmm. Theoretically, if it can exist on hard services for two hours to days, 
then it could be all over you, right? right? right. And then you, I shouldn't <clears throat> take my daughter to school, right? Because she could touch it. it could, you know, so, but if it's impossible to exist like that, then you have to just go with probabilities, mm-hmm. right? So I would say that don't worry about, you know, wipe, wiping down all your mail or your, your bags unless you don't want mail and you don't want to carry bags because it's impossible. You know what I mean? I don't I know that don't mean to sound callous, but like if you're going to get all your stuff through Amazon, do you know their whole system of, you know, of uh, of production to be be so, you know, confident that you know, every piece of lettuce, every book, right. every every toy. So mm-hmm. I would do the obvious things. Mm-hmm. Um, but also see that it doesn't appear that Amazon is the source of spread of of pandemic in the United States. Like, and I guess I was trying to like focus on like what is most probable, what right. is most you know, mm-hmm. like most probable going to get this if one of your relatives has it, mm-hmm. or you go to the mm-hmm. hospital mm-hmm. unnecessarily mm-hmm. in a, in the emergency room mm-hmm. and exposed. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if someone is symptomatic, then you have to say, okay, there's a greater risk to me. Now I need to you know up the ante. Um, but I wouldn't focus on, you know, let's just say sweat the small stuff right. when there's so much other stuff to sweat about. So in terms of my family's protection, if you are able, I think it's good to wear a mask outside, mm-hmm. um, especially if you're old, mm-hmm. right? Right. I'm considering wearing a mask starting on the outside. Again, I'm a purist. I don't believe this is spread, you know, through aerosolize. I don't. You know, hang around people that are coughing, um, um, and then I wash my hands. I'm trying to think about okay, my pants, you know, my shirt. I mean, do I go naked every time I walk in the door? It doesn't really seem not only practical, it just doesn't seem even probable. So mm-hmm. I would just say that you know, not to wear gloves because unless you want to wash your gloves constantly, that doesn't, you know, make sense to wear gloves. You just, you wear a mask if you can when you're older and you go outside, you stay away from people, try, and when you come back in, you wash your hands really well. And if you're around someone a lot in a certain particular type of clothes that would think you would put you at risk, then you, you, you put those, you know, clothes on the outside and, and, and you, and you wash them. Thank you for that. And what would you say to the people who are not adhering to social distancing or isolating or having or having problems with that? Well, the first thing I'd say is I understand because, you know, on the one hand, like, I have to go to the hospital all the time and and I want to do that, right? Like, why am I a doctor? Mm-hmm. But in that, there's a freedom, right? It's like no one can ever doubt to me why I'm riding my bike to work. Mm-hmm. Right? They'll say like instead of saying like, Oh, that dude's just taking a bike ride to work is it's more like, Oh, that guy's a, a first responder going to work. So there's a sense of freedom to that. Um, you know, my daughter, like I said at the beginning, gets to go to a school for first responders, right? So as to relieve the family, um, you know, when the when the people are working, right? Mm-hmm. Um but that itself is a privilege. You know, why did I get that and not someone else? Mm-hmm. And so I understand, but Please understand that this is not a normal time. So on last Friday, I was, I was flabbergasted. It was a really beautiful day in New York. Were you here on Friday? Are you, you're in yeah, New York, yeah, right? Yeah, I'm in New York City. Yeah. Basically, people are sunbathing in the park. You know, separated by six feet. I'm like, <laughs> you got to be joking. Huh. You got to be joking. <laughs> you know, 
<laughs> just the optics on it, right? They say in politics, you know, just the you know red face test yeah. it doesn't look good. That doesn't yeah. look good, right? It's like <laughs> it's so funny that not funny. It's not funny, but Italy, uh, which um, is now second to the United States in number of confirmed cases at ninety-seven thousand, they had this. Chinese contingent public health officials coming there to say how can we improve and you can imagine this happened to the United States if we were ever to do that which we never will the Chinese just basically shook their head and said you're not doing the quarantine correctly mm, right. quarantine means people aren't on the street yeah <laughs> like mm -hmm. getting an ice cream yeah it's just like it's too much so I understand but you know, look at the numbers. The numbers, you know, sometimes numbers lie, but the numbers really aren't lying too much. We know that every confirmed case, there's 741,000. We can assume pretty closely that that's off by a factor of 10. So if there's 143,000 U.S. confirmed, make that 1,043,000, right? Mm. And then multiply that by 0.20% which is going to get really, really sick, right? Yeah. And then multiply that by another, you know, five per, uh, ten, five percent, uh, mm. fifty percent. They're mm. going to need to be uh, um, uh, on a ventilator or mm. die, mm. right? The numbers are already in the hundred thousand in terms of mortality. Mm -hmm. So we we err on the side correctly of freedom, but notice after the quarantine that was very rigorous in. China or in Taiwan, which is more mm -hmm. directed, mm -hmm. that it was done, right? It's done. Mm -hmm. But now after two weeks of sort of semi-quarantines in mm -hmm. this country, mm -hmm. we're still deciding whether there mm -hmm. should be a more serious quarantine. It's just really sad <laughs> and scary. And uh, earlier you, you touched upon um, some of the drugs that have been mentioned that might be a sort of treatment or cure, like the... Chloroquine. Chloroquine, yeah. right? And I also mm -hmm. heard about something called remdesivir, which was actually first developed to fight Ebola, but it, it turned out not to do that. And they're saying that might also be an effective treatment for COVID-19. What do you know about that? Yeah, what I know... Um, right now about um, about the treatment is that there is none. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really disingenuous for anyone to say that there is a treatment. Just right. by definition, viruses don't have a treatment, right? right? Now, influenza, yeah, you can take Tamiflu, but even the data on that is, is, mm -hmm. is really not great. Like, mm -hmm. okay, you reduce the disease by one day, you know, for a seven-day um a disease course and so you know it's understandable that we would of course try some things but I think the part that frustrates me and you know goes back to why I established walking doctors is that there needs to be a way to systematically study the use of off-label um, uh, sorry the, the systematic way to study um, off-label use of drugs right like Chloroquine is an anti-malarial. I'm not sure right. why people think that it would be helpful for coronavirus, right? You know, so, and it was never shown. In fact, you know, Fauci, if you believe the head of allergy and infectious disease mm -hmm. at the NIH, mm -hmm. says that this should not be a standardized treatment. Mm -hmm. And yet doctors, because rightfully so, you want them to like, you know, treat you. 
they're human, they say, well, I don't know what it is. And so right now, basically every COVID-19 patient in you know, major academic institutions are getting azithromax, which is, you know, walking pneumonia drug, mm. and chloroquine, which mm. is antimalarial drug, mm. and they don't really work. There's been there's been uh, interesting stuff on uh, use of HIV drugs mm. um, for for uh, COVID nineteen, mm. but I was actually yeah, I was actually listening to the person that. Um, invented the the cocktail mm -hmm. uh, for for hiv and uh, public health hero and i'm sorry i can't remember his name um uh asian american mm. he he said no <laughs> the data is really bad wow. Wow. don't don't use it and it was his drug mm. i think it was like right, years right, or something like that right. but so you know how you treat this drug this disease is don't get it Right. That's that's not really a treatment, but, mm -hmm. but don't get it. Right? right. And if you are so bad and if you get it, realize that it's probably not going to be the bad case 80 percent of the time. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. And then, God forbid, you need to be have a ventilator. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, so then, sorry, it should be before ventilator, be oxygen, mm -hmm. you know, in various mm -hmm. forms. And then and then uh, ventilation assistance. Mm -hmm. There's been a lot of focus on the ventilators, and I, I guess yeah. there really should be, but it's also frustrating. Like, they're really expensive machines, and mm -hmm. it just sort of means it's like the last-ditch effort. Mm -hmm. And anyone that's ever applied a ventilator knows it's not a done deal. Like, once you put a ventilator in, the person's going to be on it for, like, you know, a week or two. Right. They, they might get pneumonia. The power might go off. The tube oh, might dear. slip. Mm -hmm. um, those people are already very sick. Mm -hmm. um, I bet it would be very high um mortality for those people mm -hmm. that are mm -hmm. that are intubated so it's not it's not panacea right mm -hmm. it's i guess mm -hmm. it's great that you try to get thirty thousand, you know ventilators into new york but mm -hmm. when that happens it's sort of like you know help we don't have anything else left to do you know trying to take a adaptive problem and turn it into a technical problem well my next question i don't even know if uh, if there's an answer to that because i was going to ask you <laughs> What do you think would be our best hope to, for a cure or a vaccine? There is some work being done on uh, developing a vaccine, is there? Yes, uh, for certain. And I think, you know, the U.S. and other, you know, uh, resource-rich countries are, you know, a good position to come up with something. But I think the first place in coming up with the right treatment or the right vaccine something that could prevent this is to be honest <laughs> mm -hmm. about what would be the timeline for that mm -hmm. so if people are saying you know you still hear it you know from 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 at least the the current administration that a vaccine is on the way the vaccine is not on the way right <laughs> you need to the vaccine is on the way yeah so just imagine a boat coming from you know Liberia, you know, and it's a motorboat, but it's a single motor and it's coming to New York. Okay, mm -hmm. that's what we're talking about. Mm -hmm. Maybe even a rowboat, right? Mm -hmm. It's going to take mm -hmm. a while because vaccine development takes a while. Even if you can make things faster, you don't want to like skip things like the vaccine will kill you, right? Just to, as a start, <laughs> right? Right? <laughs> you don't want to miss those course, different yeah, phases. Yeah. You know, there's mm -hmm. a reason why there's mm -hmm. four phases mm -hmm. for product development. Mm -hmm. So I think people have to just be 
set up expectation because if you don't set yes. up right expectation to the public and to clinicians, then they get all freaked out and mm-hmm. you know they get stressed. They don't they stop believing people that they need to believe. You only get trust once, and there's a there's a there's an adage in public health communication, emergency public health communication. Just say what you know and don't know, and say it frequently until people get tired of you talking. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Say you what you know and don't know. So I think the first part of it is to take a step back and say, this is what we need to do. This is what we have control over. But meantime, we are looking for a, a cure or a, a vaccine, but it takes time, yeah. right? Don't yeah. don't lie. Even if yeah. you're a, a company like mine, don't lie and say you have a solution that's not there just because you want, you know, you want some money. Right. Um, so I think there's that piece. The, the other piece is, so let the technology happen. Let those companies do what they do like they're great at that right let them do it at the pace that they require um which would be faster but not impossible but meantime um and then this is again what my company is based on is that you have to link the results of clinical care to public health bodies to evaluate what works Mm -hmm. you know so right now data is held closely by every healthcare in system, right? No one can see each other's data. And the reason why is A, um, there's legitimate issues of patient privacy. But probably the larger issue is that the medical establishment believes that the records when made public can be misinterpreted and open themselves up for uh, litigation. Mm-hmm. So. There's no way of seeing, okay, I'm at NYU, the adults are treated with azithromax and chloroquine. Mm-hmm. Um, first, to apply that consistently, if that's really what the, one the institution does, but then share the clinical results to a public health body, like, mm-hmm. let's say, the CDC, mm-hmm. right, in mass, mm-hmm. so that, that the findings can be aggregated to mm-hmm. see, does this work? Mm-hmm. Does this work enough to, to warrant the you know the expense and the application and the hope associated with associated with with a treatment so i think you need to do three things right so do let let the industry do what they do great you know awesome oh by the way evaluate why they you know never do infectious disease stuff you know before this right um second is is you know be honest about the timeline it takes and so that how we can still do things now that don't re- rely or push onto a business or a, a company what we as individuals have control over, right? Not getting the disease. And the, and the third thing is to really have the systems to evaluate the clinical effectiveness of therapies that can send securely um, data to public health bodies. That would mean like a revamping of the electronic medical record, by the way, um, mm-hmm. and how we collect data. So the electronic medical record right now just records what we healthcare providers do by and large, but it doesn't tell us how to do it and and whether our therapies are effective mm-hmm. um, as a population. Mm-hmm. You know, it's really just sort of trusting us doctors to know exactly what, you know, works and doesn't work. Um, and 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 that is really a lost opportunity. Great, thank you so much for everything that you've shared with us. Um, do you have any last words of advice to people out there who are you know hunkering down, especially in New York in the lockdown, like how to stay healthy, uh, 
how to manage themselves through this time? Uh, yes. Um, so I would, I would just do this through a story, but the theme is still trust your logic. Still trust your experience. Still value what makes us happy, content, what makes us human. So what I mean by that is you can't know 100% what is risk, right? So sometimes you have to fall back on on your experience. A, a short story was that when we opened up the first hospital in Monrovia, Liberia, uh, after a year of its closure, on the pediatric side, the standard for seeing a patient was still the same at the end of the epidemic as it was before. In other words, anyone with fever and any other symptom was not to be seen until they were tested. But as we, you know, in COVID-19, the test took days, right? Mm -hmm. took a while to mm -hmm. get. So we had to change the protocol. We had to say, okay, anyone that presents with abnormal bleeding or something that can't be explained by our knowledge mm -hmm. of pediatric disease mm -hmm. will have to get testing first before we see the patients. Mm -hmm. But 99% at the end of the epidemic, they didn't have that. So even though someone was having a seizure and had fever and I was scared, first I was in personal protective equipment as we learned, mm -hmm. but second, I tested them for malaria and usually they had malaria. Mm -hmm. If someone was vomiting and had diarrhea in a place that has a lot of vomit and diarrhea, why do I think there's an Ebola and watch them die as I, you know, wait for a test that's never going to come? So I relied on my clinical experience and just just my clinical experience and logic to mm -hmm. think, okay, what was or wasn't this horrible disease? People have to do that now. They have to understand that most runny noses are really just a runny nose. On the flip side, if they see like, wow, everyone now has high fever in the place, they need to notify you know, author uh, authorities about this um, exposure, um, not go out, uh, et cetera. But they still have to like, you know, don't leave grandma alone and never talk to grandma because, quote, she is at greatest risk for the results of this disease. I mean, it's spread through respiratory droplets, so mm -hmm. if you don't have any cold and you're normal and you're good enough to take a run in Central mm -hmm. Park, mm -hmm. then go visit grandma. Mm -hmm. Go, you know, be a family, do the things that are human affir affirming, mm -hmm. not just a binomial interaction of you have it or you don't have it and everything else doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. that's what I say is like, of course, listen, but these are big systems for giving recommendations. You have to, especially in terms of what's possible, do do the normal within a within a modified, thoughtful framing. Uh, thank you very much for um, taking the time out to, you know, offer this advice and uh, perspective on the, the COVID nineteen. Well, thank you for asking. Um, yeah, thank you. It's really great to, to reconnect with you and, and glad that you're getting different opinions on, on topics of importance. And I am just giving you one opinion. I've been speaking with Dr. Wilson Wong about his work on the 2014 Ebola outbreak and the current coronavirus crisis in New York City. To learn more about Dr. Wong, check out his blog, 
dot wilson dash wang dot squarespace dot com or find him on social media on linkedin you can find him at www.linkedin.com forward slash in forward slash wilson dash wang dash nine two eight nine five five four and on twitter you can find him at walking doctors if you enjoyed this episode of Talking Taiwan, please take the time to go to Apple Podcasts, rate us, and give us a review. Thank you for listening to another episode of Talking Taiwan. I'm your host, Felicia. Talking Taiwan is brought to you by Forumosa.com.